welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of our podcast series, Arbitral Insights. I am delighted to welcome today our latest guest, and that's Punam Milwani QC. Hello, Punam. Gautam, hi there. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. For those of you who don't know or haven't yet come across the incredible Punam, I'll give you a quick summary of her. She is the head of chambers at Quadrant Chambers in London, one of the top and renowned and very diverse commercial chambers. She was called to the bar in 1989 and became a QC in 2011. Putnam has a very broad commercial practice and she covers arbitration and litigation. She also sits as an arbitrator. And I most recently had the pleasure of working with Punam on the GAR India conference, where she was one of our judges on the keynote debate. And I know from that that Punam has a number of incredibly interesting views on a number of things. And I, I'm very excited that we can share them today in this podcast. So on that footing, Punam, and I'm sure we'll cover a lot more things in the course of this discussion than we've discussed before, I would like to ask you as an opening question, what first brought you into the law? What was it about the law that got your interest and ultimately took you into this direction? Thanks, Gautam. Well, I, I wish I had some intellectual story to tell you, but actually it's all the fault of having two older brothers. They're nine and seven years older than me. And as a child, I required a very loud, strong voice in order to be heard in the house at all. And I also seemed to disagree with them about just about everything. And so the constant refrain from my parents was, you argue so much all the time, you should be a lawyer. I'm afraid yeah. that was stuck. And I was just dead set forever on becoming a barrister and you know, did the right A-levels, supposedly, for being a barrister, read law at university, and was social that, in fact, you know, the first time I ever even came to chambers, any chambers, was my first pupillage interview. I was just knew this was the right thing for me, and luckily I was right. Well, you certainly were right, Punam, given your stellar career. And, you know, just taking you back to those early days when you were studying law, I know back then it was a very different environment to what we have now. The bar has modernised so much to welcome people in to the, the profession. So has my side of the profession. It's a lot more enlightened, as I like to tell many of my friends and colleagues, than it was when I was starting many, many years ago, which was probably about the same time that you started, actually. So, you know, just tell us a bit about those days. I mean, how easy was it or, or how difficult was it, should I say, for you to sort of attend sort of open days at chambers, do mini pupillages and ultimately secure your pupillages? I don't think those things existed way wow. back then. Mm. You know, in those days, yes, you applied for pupillage, but 
there was no formal process. I, I'm embarrassed to say I know for a fact that I wrote my applications on purple writing paper. I can't believe <laughs> my arrogance that I did that. <laughs> and there were no lawyers in my family. So no, I didn't know anything or have any connections. I just knew what I knew from reading books and attending court. But talking about how the world has changed in enlightenment, let me tell you one funny story. I was born and brought up in Hong Kong. And in fact, my mother and one of my brothers still live there. And so I had a Hong Kong passport, not a British passport. And so when I was studying here, which I did from the age of 11, I had a student visa. And then when the time came to apply to bar school, one of the boxes you had to tick was that you intended to practice in England and Wales. But reading the small print as an aspiring lawyer, it said that if you wanted to tick that box to say you intended to practice, you had to have the legal right to practice as a matter of immigration status. And I didn't have that because I had student visas, but I didn't yet have a working visa. So I couldn't tick the box. So I couldn't go to bar school. But there was in those days something called Hoban Law Tutorials, where people who wanted to be barristers in Commonwealth countries, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, they went there and then went back home to practice. So I went to Hoban Law Tutorials. And that was fine. The teaching was excellent. And then in due course, I was able to get my work visa. But there were two consequences, unforeseen consequences of that. One, when I came to the bar, everybody else had been at bar school and everybody knew each other. And there was already this collegiality amongst them that I was excluded from as a result of not being there with them. And secondly, I I did quite well at Hoban Law Tutorials. And I literally almost fell off the bench when at my inn one night, I was awarded a prize for the best foreign student, notwithstanding that I've been there for 11 years by that point. <laughs> no, I know. There are, you know, these things, yeah, they, they have a funny habit of happening, don't they? These sorts of things. It's amazing how times move on. You know, and thank goodness they have. Now, I know that you mentor many people in what you do, but I'm sure you'll agree with me that we're all the product of people who've inspired and mentored us over the years to enable us to achieve what we've achieved and to carry on achieving. And I wonder if you could share with us some of those people who have inspired and mentored you in the course of your career so far and who indeed continue to inspire and mentor you. Sure. Well, I think we all agree mentoring is key for all of us and for people from all different backgrounds. And I've been very fortunate to have had some great people in my life. I would give my first shout out to Nigel Tear, who was my pupil master at what was then called Two Essex Court, went on to become head of chambers and then the Admiralty and Commercial Court judge, retired last year. I gave his valedictory via Zoom and um, is now sitting as an arbitrator. But I actually, when I got to what was then to Essex Court, I had been rejected by my first place of pupillage. And that was the first time I think I'd ever failed at anything in life. So I was a bit broken. And, you know, talking about how times have changed, I was rejected in part because I was different. I don't mean because I was a person of colour or a woman, but because I didn't fit the mould. I flipped my hair a lot. I don't dress in a very barristerial way. I wave my hands around and And I was regarded as, you know, perhaps not what clients would want. 
And so I was a little broken when I got to two Essex, but Nigel Chair just inspired me. His love of the law, his love of teaching, the intellectual rigor he taught me, the mentoring, and he's been my role model and support for all of my career. There weren't one other woman in chambers. I didn't really know many women barristers, and somebody who was inspirational for me was a friend of my husband's through his uni days, who's Amanda Pinto, QC. And she was actually chair of the bar in 2020 through all the COVID changes. And she was the first person I met who was a woman, a mother. She had three young kids who was doing both jobs brilliantly. And who also threw excellent dinner parties and parties with lots of dancing and showed me that you really could do everything, you know, wasn't sacrificing a normal life or motherhood or fun. So she was hugely inspirational. I think before I met her, I probably really subconsciously at the back of my head thought I'd have to quit when I had children. I didn't really believe you could do it all. And then finally, I have to shout out to my dear, dear friend, Luke Parsons QC, who's a member of Chambers and a previous head of Chambers. He has given me 30 years of intellectual and emotional support. And I would say this, it's not just about inspiring you in the law. The job is a tough one. It can be a very lonely one. Big calls, big decisions. And to have someone who you can talk to about what I call wobble moments, when you have self-doubt, when it all seems too much, when you're confused, to have that support from a colleague and a friend is key. And he continues to do that for me, though I really wish he'd come in more often so I could see him more. He needs to get over lockdown. (laughs) <laughs> oh well i mean just hearing you talking about sir nigel Tier, amanda and luke is inspiring in itself and i'm gonna come back to a couple of themes that you've mentioned just now a little bit later because i think they're very pertinent i mentioned in my opening that you have a very broad commercial practice and a wonderful reputation quite rightly and you cover a number of areas one of the things i was very keen to find out from you is when did you first become involved in arbitration? Because I think it's one of these things that many of us sort of in many ways fall into. It's not something we necessarily actively seek out. So I wonder if you could just share some thoughts on the background to how you got into arbitration. Sure. Well, Two Essex Court was traditionally in the past very much known as a shipping set. And In the shipping world, the dispute resolution clause was and still is almost invariably an arbitration clause. So right from the get-go, I was in the arbitration world. But I don't want to make it sound like things were all very difficult. Actually, I've had a very lucky, lucky career. But people need to remember sort of unconscious bias and being exclusionary because I actually found arbitrations when I was young very, very difficult indeed. I was almost invariably the only woman in the room. And something about the informality of arbitration where the tribunal talked to the council beforehand and in the tea break or whatever, the difference being the only woman became more stark. All the conversation tended to be about sport or other things that I didn't know anything about in those days. And I felt very much on the back foot, so much so that there was a period where I really didn't want to do and didn't do arbitration work because I felt I was not an adequate representation in that forum. But that changed as as people changed and as I changed and became more confident. And then it was really just a process of evolution, as you say, having done my whole profile of work change from just shipping 
to more international commercial work. Obviously, all my life, my clients have been from all different jurisdictions with the international element requiring us to understand their different cultures, their different ways of thinking and all of that. And so it was a natural expansion to do general international arbitration work and do what you and I love do so much now. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, one of the things that I know, I mean, I'm not a shipping lawyer, but I, I know that the world of shipping does generate a lot of arbitrations. And it's also, as you know, much better than me, the shipping world is the bedrock of the law of contract. And a lot of the law of tort comes from the world of shipping. So, I mean, I think you were very fortunate in that sense, despite the challenges you had with arbitration that you very candidly mentioned, but you've also sincerely overcome. That was also an incredible learning experience. And you mentioned people like Sir Nigel Tier and others. You know, I know your practice is very broad, but is I can't resist asking you, are there any particular areas of the law that still really fascinate you because of the issues they throw up? I'll give you a more general answer. What I love so much and what fascinates me about the law and as you say, shipping law and the work we do is the bedrock of contract law, is that you can constantly mould and make it evolve and change it to fit new business practices, new international challenges, and so on. So what fascinates me is trying to pull back to understand what the underlying principles are, and then use those to mould and evolve to meet an unusual situation. I mean, the reality is, once you've got someone like me involved in a case, there is nothing on all fours. If there was, we wouldn't be litigating. It's a challenge what we do. And so you don't want to get bogged down. So in just this case says that it's about understanding the underlying philosophy and driver behind the principles and then playing with them. And that's the joy. That's the joy I get, trying to find an unusual way to make success in a case, but by using established principles. Now, that's actually a much better answer than I would have got to the question that I asked you, because I think that really is all about, you know, why it just epitomizes why people like you, Punam, are so successful at what you do, because you can embrace all the facts, all the principles, and then find directions of travel to ultimately get to where you want to get to. So, no, no, thank you for sharing that view. I mean, I really sound really arrogant. I didn't mean it like No, that. no, 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 it's not at all. No, it's, it's not at all. I mean, I find it really nice to actually talk about these things because, I mean, I actually think the same. Because every case is, as you know, is like telling a story. And it's about making sure your story is the one that's more persuasive and actually will fit in better with what the judge or the tribunal is thinking about. So, no, 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 I, I think that was great. One of the things which we discussed, which, which cropped up in the GAR conference that I mentioned at the top of the podcast was, and you'll recall this from our discussions, I mean, one of the themes was how can we make arbitration a better process for the people who ultimately use it? Because you know, and I know, and all our listeners will know that arbitration is now the preferred mechanism of international dispute resolution in the sort of work that we all do. But it's not a perfect mechanism. And you, know, you sit as an arbitrator, you, you act as counsel, you advise as well. I mean, are there any ideas that you feel that we could really bring forward more to improve arbitration as a process? Well, 
one of the things we talked about in that guard debate was the due process paranoia and does it exist or not. And and it seems to me, without using such extreme phraseologies, one of the things we could look at improving is a speedier resolution and less costly, but by having more ways of summarily deciding certain issues or knocking them out. I think there is a reluctance on arbitrators to do that. There is less opportunity to do it because trying to find a date when the panel of three can do some interlocutory hearing to hear the debate can be quite tricky compared to high court proceedings. And I'd just like to see a more robust approach to streamlining issues and timescales and timelines. But a lot of the responsibility for that lies on us as legal advisors too, because we may be doing our hundredth or thousandth case. And for the client, it may be the first or only the 10th. And it's obviously very important to them. But I do feel things are getting out of hand with excessive length of written submissions and memorials and every point being taken legally, prejudice points, impact points. Things are getting longer and longer. You're losing the wood for the trees. And I'd like to see more responsibility. I mean, ultimately, most cases actually turn on only a few key points. And I'd like to see everyone involved try and focus on what they are earlier, get rid of the irrelevant and that would make it a quicker more efficient and less costly process for the client but that involves engagement with the issues from an outset and and having the courage of your convictions as well as to what's right and what's wrong to argue and not. Thank you Poonam I mean just to follow on from that taking your role as an arbitrator when you're sitting in a case and you're either a sole arbitrator or as a panel three, just thinking about how you try to cut through the issues is something I've always found very fascinating because as you and I know from our experience over the years, certain high court judges wouldn't, would, would just cut you straight, would just cut straight in and would say, no, no, hang on a second. No, no, no. Forget that. And they'd put that on one side. Um, in arbitration, that doesn't tend to happen because there's a sense, and this just follows on from what you were saying about letting the process go on a bit so that people have a fair hearing and all that sort of thing. When you're sitting as an arbitrator, are there, and I'm certainly not looking to any specific cases here, but are there ways that you think arbitrators could maybe, you know, case manage matters with a bit more gravity to ensure that a case really proceeds as efficiently as possible? Well, I think that you're absolutely right arbitrators do not jump in, cut across in the way high court judges do. And that's part of the ethos and the culture of the way arbitrations are. Maybe it's partly because they want repeat appointments. Who knows? Um, but, But yes, there is a difference. I think what it is incumbent on an arbitrator to do is, and it's tied to what I said before, get the legal advisors right from the get-go and then in their submissions, written and oral, explain to them what the point goes to. Why does it matter? Why am I listening or reading this? But of course, that means to the arbitrator, they've got to engage very much from an early stage as well. And they may have to make time, notwithstanding whatever else they're doing with other appointments or their practice. Because you don't want to shut something out 
or limit something, you don't have the confidence to do that unless you truly understand the shape of the case and be confident that this isn't relevant and that you shut it out. So there is no easy answer. It's, it, it involves engagement from all sides and a, a conversation to get rid of the redundant and focus on the real. And let's not talk about disclosure. It's too boring. But, I mean, you know, documents <laughs> and how, I mean, Redfern schedules. Redfern schedules. I knew you were going to say Redfern schedules. I agree with you. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And we won't talk about Redfern schedules. I mean, that in itself could take an hour. So we're not going to talk about Redfern schedules. They don't take an hour. They take hours and hours and hours. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. No, but us just sort of talking about Redfern schedules would completely hijack this podcast. But no, 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 I no, couldn't resist a chuckle when you mentioned red phone schedules because I knew you were going to say red phone schedules. Now, I, I want to just raise something which cropped up before in what you said and also something that I was going to ask you anyway, because I mean, you are on any measure, on any estimation, a role model for women lawyers. You are also a role model for lawyers of ethnicity and for minorities and you know, that is something that I know many people, including myself, admire you hugely for. And I just wanted to just sort of preface what I'm going to ask you by, you know, because as you know, Punam, every time I do a podcast, I like to do a little research about my podcast guests. And I found a quote that you gave in the Law Society Gazette in an article entitled, The Voices of Senior Women in the Law Are Important. And it's a very short quote, but a very impactful one. You said, rightly in my view, as follows. The time has come to stop worrying. Women are bright and talented and deserve the jobs and promotions that they get. And we often bring a different perspective to the table that is finally being acknowledged and celebrated. I don't think many people could have said that any better, Punam. You know, and I being a massive fan, advocate, champion, and supporter of diversity, equality, inclusion, find that very impactful. So I just wonder, given the backdrop of everything that you know you've been through and people that you and I know and, and have been through, I wonder how we can do more to improve and champion advocacy for diversity, equality, and inclusion in its truest sense in the law so that people like you and me get more opportunities and, as you say, are acknowledged and celebrated? Well, we do need about an hour to discuss this topic, don't we? We certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, a lot is said and a lot is being done. But I think one of the problems we all have is what can I really do in real life to improve this? And And I'm sure you're doing this with this podcast where I know you discuss diversity issues. And we need to bear in mind when we talk about diversity, we're not just talking about colour and gender. We've got to encourage people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, certainly the bar has rather been in the past upper middle class bastion. You know, we've got to encourage people from different backgrounds, first generation university goers. And the work to achieve this is throughout the entire career of the of these people right from attracting them to the bar or to the law which means us not just going to the usual universities and pupillage fairs but mentoring and talking to people from different backgrounds and there are 
you know, there are many places that now you can offer your services and help for the bar. There's Cake and Council. There's the Social Mobility Foundation. There's the Bar Council CV clinics where you can help people with their CVs. There's Tech Bars Network for diversity. So putting ourselves out there, people like you and me, everybody to assist people from different backgrounds, to understand, to debunk the myth, to help them with the practicalities. That's critical. And I have to say, when I became head of chambers a few months ago, I asked people to write, I asked a committee to write a diversity paper for me. And I was astonished at how much individuals in my chambers do in their own spare time. So we've got to reach out and debunk. And we've done that, for example, you've got to keep being innovative with ideas. Because of lockdown, we started a speed moot that was entirely virtual with 64 mooters. We're now making it an annual event. And I really don't understand how we didn't think of it before. Because, for example, because it's virtual, people who would have difficulty finding the money to travel to London to find accommodation for the night to attend these events, they can do it at no real cost to themselves. They need their laptop. So... There's lots of different things. There's, have you heard of rare contextual marking, Gautam, when you're looking at CVs? Well, it, yeah, put, well, if it's what I think it might be where you, is it essentially it's like a blind mechanism of not knowing who's applying and not looking at where they've been to study and that sort of thing? It's more than that. We do all the blind stuff. We black uh-huh. out everything. But it's more than that. We actually have, it's a scheme with point systems and we have someone look at our applications where you give added weight and extra points to someone who has done better academically than you would expect them to be uh-huh, their okay. institution. So if you got three mm. A stars from a school like mine, well, that's what everybody gets. So you, you haven't outperformed. But if you get two A's and a B from a school where most people get three C's, that mm. tells us something because you've really outperformed. So yeah. And so that that's it's a different way of actually rewarding and understanding people who are outperforming. Sorry, this is a very long answer. I told you we could talk. No, no, this is brilliant. This is exactly the sort of stuff that will inspire people. No, no, please. Women in law events, open to all genders. And then during the career, and this thing comes back to one of my big themes, but when I was a young mother and there were very few of us around, the advice I was given for when I had to be out of chambers attending a school meeting or a piano recital, my son playing football was, get your clerks to lie and get them to say that you're in court or you're in a conference. Terrible advice. And I never followed it. And my advice and what's very important to people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds is be honest and transparent about what your issues are, what support you need, and talk to people. We in the profession should be much more alert to unconscious bias and to thinking about things. But as you've probably read in some of my articles, I keep saying we're not mind readers either. So people, if they want to have a long career and and juggle everything, whatever sex, whatever nationality, they need to be honest about what they need and and talk to people so that we keep and have the retention of people from diverse backgrounds through their career. I'll stop now. That was a very long No, I think that was lovely. I I could have listened to you for a lot longer, Pundam, because that's exactly the sort of stuff that's music to my ears, and we'll come back to music in a minute. That was an unintentional segue uh, uh-huh. in, into something that I'm going to raise in a minute. But, but you know, I can't resist asking you this, Pundam, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this. It would be so wonderful 
to see Ms. Justice Melwani on the bench because we don't have anyone like you on the High Court bench or any lady barrister, QC, or even senior solicitor. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to say that in a sort of, I'm, I'm saying that as a true compliment because we've got Lord Justice Singh, we have Mr. Justice Saini, we have Mr. Justice Chowdhury, we have male judges, but I'm not seeing anyone who looks like you on the bench. So, you know, I don't mean to sort of ask you an awkward question, but wouldn't it be wonderful if there were, there were more people like you on the bench? You're very kind and very flattering. And I know my mum would love it. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see where, where my career takes me. I've just become head of chambers and I need to see that job through for a few more years. And it's one that's very important to me because for reasons I've really just given, you know, for me, the support community and collegiality of, of your profession, your place of work is very important. But let, let's see where life takes me. Absolutely. No, no, no. And I didn't mean to ask you your question. Just, I, I just think you're so incredible. So I couldn't resist asking you that. Okay, then just to finish off then, because, you know, we, I always end up my podcast with asking some more lighthearted things. And I mentioned music a moment ago. You know, is there a sort of particular type of music or any particular bands or singers or, or even composers that you particularly enjoy listening to? Oh, no, my music tastes in that regard are rather mainstream. But I'll tell you what music I've been listening to almost incessantly for the last three months, Please. which is Bollywood music. <laughs> what I've been doing for the last three months is in my spare time, I've become a Bollywood dance teacher. But wow. no, 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 the reason for that is my nephew got married in Mexico, as you know, I was there a couple of weeks ago. So it was mm-hmm. a Hindu wedding one day, a Jewish wedding another day, because the bride was Jewish. Uh, but I was in charge of teaching 64 people, some Indian, <laughs> many white, Bollywood dancers for the purposes of a show. So I've been listening, choreographing, and then teaching via Zoom lots of people uh, what Indian moves are and uh, translating all the words from them and teaching them what the culture of it is and what why we do the things we do in our steps. So that's been my um, rather unusual musical experiences of the last few months. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, that answer in itself just you know brought this podcast totally to life. I mean, that's incredible. Well, are you, are you a, a Bollywood fan? Shall we one day rock some moves together? Oh. I, you know, yes, is a short answer. And I would love to rock some moves with you. I mean, I've always been a fan of the, just the, apart from the sheer energy of the music, the how theatric it is. And especially when you see it in a movie context with, with all the multiple costume changes and the sheer spectacle of it. Now, you, you obviously can't do that at a typical Sangeet at a wedding. And I'm, I suspect the, the dancing that you were doing was for the for that part of the wedding. I think it must have been quite a party, though, because if if you've got a Hindu groom, I guess, and then you've got a Jewish bride, and you've got the two sets of family and all their friends, that is a very diverse mix of people. So I'm impressed that you got them all dancing. Well done. Oh, it was great fun, and everyone was up for learning about the other one's culture. And it was a blast. It really was. 
Oh, incredible. Well, I certainly will look forward to when I see you next, we can swap some stories about music, uh, especially of the Bollywood kind. And uh, because, you know, I'm certainly no stranger to that sort of thing. So um, I look forward to that. Look, Punam, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. I can't thank you enough for being such a wonderful guest. So much fun, so energetic and so inspirational. And I, you know, I just think you are just one of the most incredible people that people should be hearing about more because what you do and how you do it is so exceptional. So thank you very much. Very flattering again, but thank you. And it's been a blast. Thanks. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.